and welcome to another Animation 1-to-1s from Squiggly.com. I'm Steve Henderson. Or is it 1-to-2s this week as we meet Kirk D'Amico, director and co-writer, and Kiela Alaguerra Hudes, the co-screenwriter and co-story creator of Vivo, which is streaming on Netflix now. The animated musical adventure features all new songs from Lin-Manuel Miranda, the Tony, Grammy and Pulitzer Prize winning creator of Hamilton and Into the Heights and follows a one-of-a-kind Kinkajou who spends his days playing music to the crowds in a lively square with his beloved owner, Andre. But when tragedy strikes, it's up to Vivo to deliver a message that Andre never could, a love letter to the famous Marta Sandoval, written years ago in the form of a song. Yet, in order to get to Marta, who lives a world apart, Vivo will need the help of Gabby, an energetic tween who bounces to the beat of her own offbeat drum. In a world of musical films, Vivo stands apart, wherein the love for music and the craft for well-told family animation well and truly on its sleeve, showcasing an exciting blend of songs, design and story. Before we meet Kirk and Kiara, don't forget to give this video a quick like on YouTube and if you're listening to the podcast, be a pal and write us a nice review. It all helps with the work we do here on Squiggly.com. Now, over to the interview. <laughs> My name is Kirk D'Amico, and I'm the director and co-writer of Viva. Uh, my name is Kiara Alegria Hudes, and I am the co-screenwriter and co-story creator of Vivo. Uh, I wonder if we'd be able to talk about the journey that the film has taken from its uh, original inception. I mean, I think um, it started with Lynn, um, and it was at a different company, and he had read a treatment and did some music for it. He was very intrigued by the original premise of the idea of these to uh, the duo between this uh, older man and this musical animal. And so that's where it started. And then it um, came to, in our world, at Sony Animation around 2015, 2016. And that's when Kiara got involved. Do you want to speak about your moment of when you, when you first heard about it? Yeah, I heard about it. I had been hearing about it as Lynn was working on it and, and coming up with songs. And then at a certain point, he asked me to come join the team. So... Um, in some ways, I feel like I've been in its orbit for the whole 10 years, but I didn't really start writing um, in earnest um, in, in a real full way until a handful of years ago. And one of the things that comes across in the film is that there's a, an immense amount of energy into the musical numbers. When I'm watching this, I'm thinking these can't just have been sung in a small booth. There must have been some kind of workshopping going on. The relationship between animation and theatre is an incredibly tight one in this film. Uh, I wonder if we'd be able to explore that. I mean, one of the things that happens with a 10-year process is, and I, and I saw this on In the Heights too, it might be how Lynn works, but it might represent other composers, I don't know, but... Um, you know, things don't stay the same forever. So a song will sit there, like the, the opening number, um, that song sat there for a long time and influenced the energy of the dialogue, the energy of the story. But then as the dialogue and story develop and expand, Lynn takes that and writes another draft of the song. And, and that iterative and kind of workshop process happens over and over and over again. So it started out as, the song had the same energy, but very different specifics by the time it, it comes out on Netflix on Friday. So, so yeah, very much. That's the, that's the theater habit he has of constantly workshopping and rewriting. 
but uh, is, how, how did your involvement uh, happen with that then, Kirk, in that, in that story? Yeah, that was the, you know, when you're talking about animation, there is that's one thing about the process is animation production is a four-year workshop. Uh, we don't we don't go out and shoot anything. We just workshop, workshop, and then we're done really at some point. Um, so we go back and forth. Um, that's why I think it's, it's, it's always been a, you know, historical marriage between musicals and animation um, because they could sort of built from the same, same, same sort of a creative process. And so in this one, there were some, like Kira says that the first opening song had existed in the previous version of what Lynn did. So we had that as animation in our animation studio to sort of build to but then there's other songs in the movie where for many years it existed with just a card with an idea of a song uh, you know holding its place until Lynn wrote the song and then the other one the sort of the third version was a scene that existed as a spoken scene like the scene in the middle of the movie with the song called keep the beat that existed as only a dialogue song for a very long time and then it was only musicalized last summer by Lynn um, when he was looking for a place to sort of put a song in the second act to architecturally shape out the musical part of the movie. Um, so that was, so there was a back and forth constantly between our storyboard team and the music um, and, and, and team music, if you will. The film beautifully combines uh, the presence of a stage musical with the structure of animated filmmaking. Was it a struggle to maintain that balance and to ensure that both got equal play? I suppose, I mean, the obvious kind of sacrifices that had to be made is that uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda couldn't really do an entire stage performance dressed as a monkey. I know he's got range, but he right. couldn't have uh, he couldn't have shrunk himself down uh, to that size. Uh, so I wonder where you found the balance, uh, because a lot of the stage comes out in this film and a lot of the animation comes out as well. Well, I think the design from the beginning, even with our production designer, Carlos Zaragoza, the idea was to tell this as a musical, a theatrical musical. We weren't making an animated film that happened to have songs. This was meant to be a theatrical presentation. That's why we even have curtains at the beginning that open and curtains at the end. It, it was, you know, the, 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 the geography of Cuba through Key West, through the Everglades in Florida, the idea was uh, what would it look like on a big soundstage musical from the 50s where everything was designed and you had control over everything. So that's what we were really looking for. It wasn't about getting a photo real look and trying to put this in the real world. It is a loving portrait of those worlds, but it's not, um, it's a theatrical representation of the world. And so we felt like that was one thing that we felt gave us the alibi to have these sort of whimsical sort of flights of fancy in Mambo Cabana sequence where we're going into the past and we're using all the tools in the toolbox. And actually, I just saw a screening with an audience in, in New York City, and it was really, really a treat to see it with an audience because it's being released on Netflix. I don't take that for granted so much. Um, so to, to hear where the children in the audience were responding was quite special. And at one point when in, in the last, the penultimate song, the love song gets delivered and Marta played by Gloria Stefan is singing it. And we cut to the reaction of Vivo and Gabby and Rosa watching the concert. And when we cut to that, there was a child in my row saying, mom, they're in the theater with us. You know, and that was that was so cool, you know, that it's like, yes, that's right. Together, together. That is beautiful. Um, you've touched upon Cuba and Florida as locations. 
both showcased beautifully in the film. Maybe we could talk a little bit more about uh, putting those across on screen from a, the importance from a writing point of view uh, and then from an animation and design point of view. Thank you, or you want to take the writing? Sure, I mean, from a writing point of view, one of the things that was exciting to me about having the different locations is they come with different histories. So, um, you know, Vivo, the characters of Vivo and Andres represent um, the con a contemporary iteration of a, a pretty extraordinary Cuban musical tradition. Um, when, when we got to Miami, I was like, let's bring in a very different energy. Miami's, you know, a more recently developed city. And even though there are very historic parts of it, the, the, the deep roots of the history aren't as much. And so I wanted to bring a character that was also a little bit more contemporary and wild um, to, to that. And part of the fun in that is the contrast. It is the clash. And, and um, so that gave us a lot of room to play in terms of Gabby representing a very new and irreverent kind of, you know, reinvent the wheel energy, whereas Vivo upholding a tradition. And then on the animation front, we were very excited because these are locations that we hadn't really seen in CG animation, um, and they're both colorful and varied. Um, so we were able to, working with Roger Deakins and our team of artists, really give sort of four visual resets. So it's not just geographical, but the warm colors of Havana to the blown out light and the kitschiness of Key West to those, you know, the the the, the greens and of, of, of the moistiness of the Everglades that we tried to get. And then into Miami, which we just went for sort of our Emerald City, um, taking elements of uh, Art Deco and, and, and you know, contemporary skyscrapers and just mashing them all together and, and, and you know, and enjoying that at night because the LED lights and all the, the fun that it felt like they were, you know, riding into this theater. And then returning back to, which was great to hear that story, but returning back into the Mambo Cabana, which is got the feeling and the lighting of Vivo's old home um, for those scenes in there. So that was sort of to show the journey visually um, and refresh the audience's eyes as we went through the road trip. We mentioned Gabby. Um, I think Gabby's song, the explosive introduction to Gabby, it kind of showcases quite a lot. Number one, that you found this incredible new talent uh, in, in, in the voice artist, but that Sony Animation are working on exciting uh, animation and designs. Did you find yourself working with other, uh, alongside other productions go at the same time? Uh, was, there, uh, was there collaboration? Were you sharing technologies and, and, and advances and things like that in order to create this uh, wow in a world of ho-hum. <laughs> nice. Um, yeah, the, you know, the, uh, we started in 2016 and Spider-Verse was already in production. And so our Sony Imageworks that actually produces all of the, it's in Vancouver. So a lot of the tools and they develop different tools for every film. Um, and so what was super exciting was, is that Sony Animation was, you know, allowed us to press, you know, push the boundaries of what is animated and, we decided that using the um, uh, the one super cool animation tool that we built um, was actually in the backgrounds of all the sh all the shots that are outside of the songs. It has this sort of uh, level of detail that drops off. That was very deliberate that we wanted to do. And again, to the musical theatrical idea was that while they're on stage, those backs just look like 
stage props almost like so that there's you know that they were almost hand painted and they could be moved like you could almost take in Havana and slid it across the stage and pulled Key West in we didn't want it to feel so real that you were you wanted it to feel like we were watching this theatrical thing so they built this incredible tool that somehow or geniuses but somehow takes the level of detail and drops it off almost like depth of field but drops it off um, even within the, the the surfacing of the actual buildings as you go back in, in space. So there's a lot of interesting things and they really are working wonders up there. They're amazing artists. I did also notice as well, uh, when, when the songs are going on, the background characters are moving their lips as well as they would be on stage. There's something, uh, there's, there is something incredible to be said about that. And if we go back to the idea of Gabby's explosive introduction, it, it must be the most bombastic introduction to an animated character since the genie sang uh, Friend Like Me. And I think it really comes across uh, as that. Um, could you tell me a little bit more about writing for a character like Gabby and how, it, how, how we have to put forward uh, the idea of her? Um, the character of Gabby is one that in some ways is, I, I have been like, softly workshopping in my own writing since I think 2003. I wrote a play then called The Adventures of Barrio Girl, which was not family friendly. It was quite an adult piece, um, but it featured this this heroine that was a lot like what who ends up becoming Gabby in Vivo. And, and this sort of wild child, bombastic, unapologetic um, burst of energy. I think of Gabby as a pinata that's burst in some ways um you know so that that burst of of life and character um i think i had been working on this in some ways to like find a home it had been kind of this like homeless character for me and, and then it found a home in vivo um and she she's inspired by my little sister who was born when i was 13 whose whose name is actually gabby um and i I told the audience at the uh, at this screening in New York that I, one of my favorite memories of her that I think gives a sense of of how I adapted something from my real life is that she was always a chubby kid and I used to have to like give her a bath and get her dressed at night after after school and she found the mirror one day and just like was marveling at her big round belly and was like my belly is round as Mother Earth. And she was just celebrating this and did a whole dance with it. I was like, that's right. That's absolutely right. And, you know, it was before the world had totally told her to, that that was not something to celebrate and be proud of, um, you know, so that was her natural state was just in a total state of shock and celebration at how awesome she was. <laughs> it, it's very important to have characters like that in, in films, especially given that you've got a, a young audience watching uh, these things. Um, uh, also, in terms of characters, uh, I uh, I didn't think that I've seen animated spoonbills before uh, in all my animated film watching, but I'm glad I waited so long. There was a lot of hilarious design and execution in the animation for the characters, and in particular for the uh, the Python as well. Uh, it all ties in in nicely. Can we talk a little bit more about the character design? Yeah, that's um, Joe Mosier uh, did our designs and he's worked on great films um, and all animation people will, will recognize it. And um, the fun thing about the Spoonbills and uh, I thought the Python, the Spoonbills, 
were great because we had these great actors and Brian Tyree Henry and Nicole Byer, and they have this sort of almost a Muppety sort of look. They're just basic, they're Muppets. I mean, let's face it, right? But that, you know, where Viva was in his arc and where they came, um, you know, it felt like having this sort of fun interlude with these characters was what he needed and keeping it on point, uh, you know, having this sort of, he, he came from this place in Cuba where there was nothing, there was this, he's out of his element. And so now he's dealing with the, these, these kind of, these creatures. And with the snake, I think the most thing interesting from the animation standpoint, besides the cool design is the surfacing of the diamonds that they did, that ever, all those diamonds and all the, the kind of the way he surfaced, it's really hard to get that, I believe, you know, to get that much uh, acting range and emotion out of a character that doesn't have hands, like I'm gesticulating right now, like when I'm talking, uh, it's just part of who I am, Italian guy, but the, uh, but the, uh, so it's like, I use my hands, so it's like, uh, the, you know, not having any appendages and only having a face, but when Michael Rooker took it on, it just had, I felt like, it matched the style because he almost has a he is like a he has a little showman almost a broadway python he's a he's showy you know he's a show off so i felt like he just brought such swagger to it that felt right for our thing that brought right for the design so we were very lucky um with that uh casting because it really matched uh his that 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 crazy you know sort of a, almost like a, a over the top design that we we had settled on and, and it is a it is a wonderfully cast film, I suppose. Uh, we we've we've spoken about uh, about that. Can we maybe talk a little bit about the importance of a good cast uh, in in an animated film, and particularly if they if they do come across uh, as the people that you imagined in the writing, uh, Kiara? I mean, the the first two that come to mind are. Um are kind of elders in the film, Wanda Marcos and, and Gloria Stefan, and, and what they, the, the level of depth and warmth and rootedness that their voices, their, um, especially their speaking voices bring to, you know, the scenes is, it's splendid to hear. Um, obviously their singing voices are tremendous too, but against this, against Lynn's like dexterous sprightliness and against uh, Yanarli's just wild, you know, kind of sometimes brash, but always bright, uh, you know, youthful vocals to have these two anchors that just feel like there's so much life in their voices um, that, you, and you can hear that life, you can hear that tenderness and that authority, um, that kind of soft authority that comes with age. I, I love them. And, and they're, those musicians are, they're iconic. They're very important. It was very important to me personally. I, I remember, you know, I grew up listening to, you know, shake that body, baby, do that conga. That was so central to me as a young Latina coming of age and hearing, hearing that, hearing our sounds explored um, in such a new and contemporary way. And Juan de Marcos, I mean, I, I was listening to the, um, to the All Stars and to the Buena Vista Social Club my entire college years, you know, I wrote plays while listening to, to his voice and that music. And so it's, it's wonderful to have them bring that depth. And did the characters uh, obviously uh, come to life a little bit more when you started hearing the uh, cast recordings, Kirk? Oh, most certainly. I think, I think the biggest one we, we really, I, almost all, because we were trying to make this, you know, really keep it a musical about music and focus it on musicians. And so, you know, we had Juan who had never acted before, who was just 
you know, he's like, I don't know if I can do this. You have to tell me if I could do this. And he was amazing at it. And in Arlie, who is just, you know, a girl who is looking forward to, you know, doing this kind of musical career. Now she's in performing arts high school and stuff. So it's like, she kind of grew into it. Um, and then obviously Gloria, Gloria. So it's like, we had this, every single one of them brought their, I feel like it's like with, with Juan and Gloria, that, that sort of, you know, the, the craftsmanship and, and the years of being at the top of their game is comes across. Um, and especially in the teachings section with, with Andres and Vivo. And then with Inarli, I don't think you could ever catch that again. It's like lightning in a bottle that a kid is, a kid is at that age with that much moxie, but at the same time is like, you know, has the stuff. She had the goods that when Alex and Lynn could work with her, she could pull off the song. So yeah, it was a, that's a, it was like, you know, in the years of her, her growing up, like we just had to capture that that Tuesday afternoon is like forever sealed. Fantastic. Uh, well, Kirk D'Amico and uh, Chiara Alegria Hudes, thank you very much for talking to Squiggly today and congratulations on Vivo. Thank you. Vivo is streaming now on Netflix. Thanks for joining us for another animation one-to-one. -one. If you want more, you can follow Squiggly on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. You can like and subscribe to our YouTube channel. And for more animation videos, tell a friend about the work we do here. And as ever, for the latest news, reviews, interviews, podcasts, and everything else from the world of animation, head over to squiggly.com.